Hello there, and welcome to the 2022 kidney donation episode of An Irishman Abroad, because of course it is five years since I donated a kidney to my brother Adrian, and you know, still today, it's the scariest and best thing I've ever done. It opened me up to a world I didn't know existed, introduced me to all sorts of people, doctors, surgeons, nurses, campaigners, donors, recipients, and just straight up heroes I never would have known existed were it not for the fact that my big brother needed a bit of help. It forced me, of course, to ask loads of questions of myself, consider my family and the world and the way I interacted with it. Like it it just, it obviously changed me, changed my brother, our friendship and how I view organ donation and community in general. But as a direct result, I had the opportunity to write a one-man stand-up show about the experience that I toured for an entire year to raise awareness and meet the people affected by this issue across Ireland and the UK. But to mark five years, I wanted to continue that, at least for this week, specifically to put some energy that way, because I believe that if donors like me don't talk, then more people suffer people that are suffering unnecessarily on waiting lists on dialysis the more donors like myself who can talk and will talk talk then the better you can understand from the outside why having a donor card and potentially live donating is something that isn't beyond the realms of possibility we have put together Something very special here with this episode with the help of my friends Lucy Davis, Donald McRae, Darren Cawley, James Nolan and more. And there is hopefully something in here for everyone regardless of whether you are on a waiting list living in hope, heading towards your donation day uh, as a recipient or as a donor, whether you're considering going and putting yourself forward or whether you don't have a donor card at all and you're thinking, Jesus, I better I better do that. It's the 2022 kidney donation episode of An Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Well, before I donated my kidney, Declan, to my brother, I, I had to give it a name. As any live donor will tell you, you're a different person back then. As anyone who has been involved in the live donation process will tell you that the world that you live in changes on the other side of it. You don't live in the same place anymore. Nothing looks the same or feels the same afterwards. And it's not too much to say that. Before I didn't did this thing, I didn't know 
anything about organ donation other than it was possible, it saved lives and that I really should have a donor card. But like so many, I, I hadn't bothered. I hadn't bothered to get one. I knew I should, but just hadn't bothered. The thing that is, though, that with organ donation, like a lot of things, until you live it, until you see it up close and personal, you can't really understand it or get it. But the second you do, you see it everywhere from that point forward. You can't unsee it. You see its connection to everyone, everyday life, its connection to empathy, understanding and community. And, you know, I won't be able to do that, that communication job for you in one podcast. But I think the contributors today get very close to bringing you to that place of getting this Irishman Abroad, this show that I have right here and the podcast network of Irishman Abroad is built around the idea that a simple conversation can result in great things. And this week, a simple conversation with your family or partner about what you'd like to do with the wealth that surrounds your bones could change multiple lives forever and leave you a legacy of being an absolute legend. So let's start with Lucy Davis, who you will know as the ridiculously talented and funny actress from things like uh, The Office on BBC, uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Californication, and of course the Wonder Woman films. Uh, She has seen organ donation change her and her family's life forever. So let's let her tell her story. So when I had my transplant, it was 1997. So roughly, I think that's just over 23 years. And the world was a little different then. Thankfully, things are changing and people are becoming more accepting of certain things. But back then, I found, uh, you know, I was on, I, I was an actor then, back then, and my dad in England is well known. And there was press waiting for us outside of the hospital that I was at. And then when we were at home, and my mom had used to be a journalist before she got married and before she had me. And suddenly a couple of journalist friends, shall we say, would call and drop by the house because it would be very difficult to turn somebody away. And I remember seeing um, a journalist coming in and when he thought he wasn't being seen, taking photos of our photos in the house, like family photos. No. And Yeah, and my mom and I was still on couches and recovering and the operation back then was a lot bigger than than it is today thankfully and we were just not very well and this huge thing had, had happened to us and now we've got people knocking on a door and and certain publications continually years and years later writing about me as if I'm still unwell <clears throat> and it was in days before social media where you can more easily maybe if you wish, you know, speak on your own behalf. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I just, I felt like I'm just not going to say anything. This is my business and I'm saying nothing. Mm. And and in many ways, I did live like that. It was very, very private. And as the years have gone by, I've loosened up a little bit with that. And in terms of why I speak more now is because 
actually, I saw an interview with Sarah Highland, you know, the actress yes. from Modern Family. Now, she's had two transplants, and I think she's amazing. And I was listening to a short interview, and I heard her say things that resonated with me without realizing that they resonated until she said them. Things that I can't really explain, but one of the things she said was, spending your whole life feeling a burden, it has a huge effect on you. And for some reason, I was like, yes, yes. My family never make me feel like a burden. I know that I'm not in that were my family to have needed a kidney, I'd have given one without hesitation. And I know all of that. I'm not stupid. But the idea that because your family were close and they care so much, that ever since I've been diagnosed with kidney failure, I was like 20, it, I'm aware, I was aware at the time of like, I don't want to be the ill one. I don't want to be the one that people go, that's the kidney girl. And I'd have some people as soon as I'd enter a room, go like they'd change their demeanor and be like, oh, how are you? All right. I hate that. 100%. Like, yeah. Like, let the kidney thing be the thing that I just do and deal with and then, and then ignore it. And for many years, there were people that didn't even know I'd had a transplant or anything. But hearing Sarah talk, and I don't know her at all, I properly firsthand became aware of the benefit of hearing somebody else say things that resonate with you. And I've often spoken about other issues I've had. You know, I've spoken about being in recovery for an eating disorder. I've <clears throat> spoken about being diabetic. I'm, I'm diabetic because one of the drugs I, was, uh, I am on for my transplant gave me diabetes. So, but those things I haven't, but I think the kidney stuff for me began at a time when there are certain newspapers that just wouldn't let it go. And everything I did was, was I was either too underweight, too overweight. Oh, the kid, she's ruining the kidney. This is happening with the kidney. Now she's been in hospital with kidney failure. And none of these things were real. And so I think I just kept my mouth shut more yeah. and more and and retreated understandable and, yeah yeah i mean so, it's, it, my my wife has a a long-term illness and for the same oh. reasons lucy even though she's not in the public eye yeah. she can identify with a lot with what you're saying about not wanting it to define you and right. not wanting you know people to be unable to get past you know to right. just every time they see you they think that and then it becomes the thing they don't say that, you know, they want to say. Uh, and I always respect Tina's decision to just be yeah. like, no, this is mine. And I will I will not yeah. allow that to become my thing. What you're doing yeah. right now yeah, yeah. and what you've said just there is 100 percent why I'm doing this episode is because right. I believe that the communication and the dialogue and the Irish Kidney Association and Organ Donor Week that's taking place right now is about informing people and getting that first hand experience yeah. of the power mm. of this mm. thing. When you yeah. when you're there in it, yeah. just as I've been, uh, but you're on the other side. Yeah. 
is it hard to articulate exactly the power of this gesture, this this act that your mother did for you? Oh, you know, the only way I could articulate it is by knowing that I would be doing the same. That's the that's the thing that gave me the comfort because I'm not a good receiver of things and I need to be better at that because actually you know when you say things like oh I'd rather give than receive it it makes it sound like oh isn't that lovely of you but actually it isn't you know it's actually quite a gift to somebody when you can receive something graciously and 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 be genuinely thankful for it and obviously I was I I it was hard because I'm also seeing my mom go under huge surgery and and you know like we know it is it is a little easier nowadays so that's wonderful back then in 97 it was a huge thing and in fact not a very big thing to have uh, a kidney not from a cavender to have a live kidney mm. wasn't thing that was done as much i went to end stage renal failure before the really? transplant happened yes because then it was about look, you know, your kidney might last four, five, six years. We, your new kidney, rather, the, the, the transplant. Uh, we, we know someone who's had it 10 years. Um, so back then, it was about trying to keep you going as long as possible without the transplant in order to add extra time the other end. And I remember at the time thinking, I, I refuse to take that on. I refuse to take it on that I might have to have another one. That's all I can remember thinking. Like, it was like I, w- I was going to sweep it under the carpet, which, P.S., I don't think is a terrible thing to do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, this isn't happening again. And, that, and who knows? I don't know, Jonathan, what will happen, but I'm 23 years in now. And I think our attitude to anything is the biggest part of why something might succeed i don't want to say obviously that if it hasn't succeeded it's because someone doesn't have a good attitude i really don't i'm not meaning that but for me it's what got me through Mm. through is to not focus on the being the ill person i don't think that was the question you asked well well, no it's it's just interesting because it actually echoes some of what vivian has said in the first half of this episode uh, about the attitude and, you know, about the positivity that you bring to it. And, right. you know, th- that came up in my situation. And I think a lot of people are aware of this thing of I don't necessarily believe in the secret. I don't necessarily believe in the right. power of positive thinking. But yeah. y- you when it's your mom giving you this, right. it yeah. must be it, like it must be even more difficult in so many ways because she's already given you so much. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you remember the conversation or the moment when you both looked in each other's eyes and realized, yep, yeah, it's going to be my mom and this is going to happen? Um, not quite in that way. I mean, um, all my family went to get tested and my mom and my one of my sisters were a match. In fact, one of my sisters was a hundred percent match and it was it was so unusual that they asked her to do the tests again they thought they were actually looking at my blood oh my god yeah and but obviously i was then 20 some well 21 i think by then and so and she would only have been 18 and the last thing i would have wanted is first 
my sister at 18 to have given me a kidney. This is just, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying what I went through at the time. And yeah, so all those things I was going to say, what was it? So you decided it would be your mother. So they, yeah, it was more decided, I think, Bless my mom. I don't think she was letting anyone else get in there. <laughs> I, think, I think my mom was being like, nope, 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 nope. I've had all my children. <laughs> I don't need my other kid. I mean, that's my mom for you. My dad would have been the same. So I was very lucky. But I will say, obviously, you thank the person that's done that for you. But I would say it was about only two years ago, Jonath, when I was coming back from a, a checkup at hospital here. And I've had a couple of issues around the kidney stuff in the last few years. And I broke down on the phone to my mom and said what might be a proper thank you. And I don't want to say that therefore I haven't because we've said it a million times. You know, we have on anniversaries, which is 15th of December each year, on anniversaries we'll text each other, do you know what I mean? And like, oh, it's five years. And, you know, thank you again, mom, love you, all of that. But but about two years ago, I just broke down. And I was like, and what had happened was I'd had a blip in something and then but I suddenly realized how few people there were going on what was then 21 years with a kidney, with a transplanted kidney. And I had this whole kind of wave of like, oh my God, like I'm so lucky. And and I just sobbed on the phone to my mom, who then of course sobbed back. And, and I'm not a very... Um, what's the word like fluffy person in that way do you know what I mean like, I do quite straightforward like I'll say thank you so much I really appreciate that I, I don't I don't break down and cry with that I'm, that's not really me and I just was like I can't believe what you did and I don't know what it was about that moment that that happened but yeah so so we had a really nice phone call then it's uh, it, it, it's it's normal to be overwhelmed i mean, I mean yeah. if this doesn't overwhelm you what will mm-hmm. I, I mean the couple yeah. of the couple of things that i've been talking to people about specifically around the awareness of this again thank you for doing this because you know your voice here will draw ears to this episode that just wouldn't have listened Okay, that's the fact. And that's that's the power, as you say, Sarah Highland and yourself have and the role that you're playing here. Uh, So if you're talking to those people that mightn't have listened to the episode, were you not on it? Yeah. What is it you'd like people to know about organ donation and carrying an organ donor card? I know I know the stuff for me, but I'm interested from your side. What is it that you have come across and you thought, I wish people could know this? I think, you know, the idea of organ donation, first of all, if you're living is one thing. And if you're donating and you have a loved one who passes away, who wants their organs donated, sometimes people, family members can find that very difficult. And and I do understand that. I I am quite practical in that kind of way. I, I think once our body is is no longer, you know, working, we've passed away, I wouldn't have any problem with someone taking everything that I've got 
to the idea that it might actually give another life, I think is really amazing. I'd be so, oh, so happy. Whoever had it, do you know what I mean? Mm. I'd be so happy. So I do encourage people just to look into that. I, I do know that other people have their own beliefs around donation, especially when people have passed away. But, you know, it, the, what you give in return, that life that you've given someone that I wouldn't have had, had this not been the case. I think it's such a huge thing. And um, anyone who could consider it, you know, it would be so amazing. Um, obviously, I haven't been the person, I've been the person that's received it and not um, given it. But I think my mom would say exactly the same, you know, that to to have given it has been um, a joy for her. If I say that on her behalf, she might listen to it and go, well, <laughs> let me tell you this. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's I, and I know with some people it can be it's a very strange subject in many ways. To me, it isn't. To me, the idea of, of letting somebody else live it is a no brainer for me. I had forgotten how powerful that conversation was. You can hear the whole thing back in the archive over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad in the bigger episode we did with her a year ago. Uh, a massive thanks to Lucy Davis. I, I felt really honoured at the time that she would speak to me the way she did about her organ donation story because uh, she one, she felt comfortable enough to do it, but also that she'd never really spoken about it in detail. And, you know, it was a no brainer for me, my own personal decision. And for a lot of you listening, it's it's a no brainer to give life rather than, you know, allow others to suffer. But our next contributor uh, isn't a donor. He is an author and friend of this podcast, a uh, previous guest on the show, author of an incredible book that I hadn't even known about until my own donation. Up until then, I just associated Donald McRae with his superb boxing books, Dark Trade, Man's World and biographies that he'd written for people like Stephen Gerrard. But in around the 2000s, he spent four or five years researching and investigating the first ever human heart transplant, which took place in his homeland of South Africa. It is a moment in human history when the entire world sat up and took notice of the possibilities of organ donation and equally an achievement with a story all of its own. And no one captures it and tells it better than the man himself, Donald McRae. It was in the depths of apartheid. South Africa was an isolated nation holding on to white domination. Uh, we were in a society of deep censorship with no television because television was seen as a tool of communism. So for this first heart transplant to happen in Cape Town was a phenomenon and it bewildered us all at first because talking now about my mother and father's perspective, they could not believe that this medical innovation had actually happened in South Africa, where it seemed like politically we were so backward and technologically we also felt we were backward. So it touched white South Africans and to a certain extent black South Africans in, in quite a deep way. 
It's incredible to think of that, that there was, I guess it's hard to ever imagine things that we assume as normal and part of our lives and culture and society had a first time and that there was a time prior to this being in existence. Obviously, kidneys had occurred before this, but the heart was special and was something that was obviously built up over time. Was there a consciousness of that uh, among you and your parents as a child and as you researched it to find out more? Certainly as a child, I guess I wouldn't have understood the symbolism of the heart. But as I you know, got older, and certainly when I started working on this book, which took me four years to complete, all the cliches started tumbling about in my head. You know, I'm going to work my heart out. I'm going to give my heart to that girl. And it just made me understand that it was shocking for the world in, in 1967 that a heart could be taken out of one person and given to put into the body of another person. I think the kidney had happened um, successfully in 1954, and um, the first successful liver transplant um, was in 63, so four years before the first heart transplant. And the kidney and liver lack poetic symbolism. They're highly important organs in the body, but mm. it's the heart that I think we all you know, sort of see as being sort of the signifier of life. So it was a, the world was agog in 67 when this first heart transplant happened. Were people blindsided uh, by it in that I don't imagine that the world was aware of the number of dogs that had given their lives for this uh, experimental treatment to take place in the name of progress. I mm. mean, it's maybe the hardest part of your book to read is the uh, acknowledgement of these poor, innocent creatures that yeah. were sacrificed in the name of science. Yeah, well, you know, I spent a, the four surgeons in, in, in my book, and um, the man who was most successful, who did the first one, uh, Chris Barnard in South Africa, he did the least work on dogs. But his, his success in doing the first transplant was actually built on the methodical work done in the labs by the surgeons in the USA. And yes, so many animals did, did die. I don't think they suffered particularly, but they would be given a new heart and some would live for six days, some for six weeks, some for six months. But the surgeons I interviewed in the US who had done this sort of methodical um, innovation, innovative work said to me, yes, it, they felt a little twinge when they lost the dog, but they said this work was helping them to save tens of thousands of human lives in, in the decades to come. So in a way, that made me feel, well, those, those animal lives weren't totally wasted. It's an extraordinary uh, period in history in that it feels like uh, it was like the space race. It mirrored that uh, this overleaping ambition of these four surgeons to land on the moon first, to yeah. to get there before everyone else. The the way you paint these characters, you can you can explain to people exactly how similar to uh, kind of rival nations or sports people uh, they were in how different their characters were and how much even at times they hated each other. 
Yes, um, I think they, they are quite similar to sportsmen in, in their competitive nature and also their ability to um, find poise and calm when it matters most. Because surgeons basically, it's not a cliche to say they have our lives in their hands. And if they don't actually calm themselves, they could easily lose their patient. But they, they are scientists first and foremost, so they are analytical people. But deep within this um, scientific psyche is this desire to actually better other people and to be the first. And Dr. Norman Shumway and Dr. Dick Lauer were the first two who started in the late 1950s with the kernel of this idea that they were going to find out whether it was possible to transplant a human heart. And they began with the dogs. They were moving quietly, calmly, and they, they didn't mind if it was going to take 10, 15, even 20 years for them to master this technique. They just were sure that they were going to do it first. They didn't believe anyone else would have the audacity to do this. But then another doctor in New York got wind of what they were doing, and he started moving quicker. And so this made Shumway and Lau a bit twitchy because they thought, well, some guy in New York could beat us. So they started to escalate their efforts, and they were pushing each other. And then Chris Barnard, the South African, had actually studied in Minnesota with Norman Shumway back in the sort of early uh, or mid-1950s. And Barnard was actually thinking of going into kidney transplantation, and he went over to uh, Virginia, where Dick Lauer, Norman Shumway's associate, was actually working. And he saw Lauer move one heart out of a dog, into another dog and this dog survived and he said gosh this technically is so simple it's much easier than a kidney i'm going to go out and do it i'm going to become the first i'm going to become the most famous man in the world and his perfusionist said but chris you've done no work and barnard said no i haven't done any work i've done hardly any work on dogs and i'll do a few but i will just be the first so again, that sporting desire um, emerged in him, and I think they all pushed each other. So they were, they were pioneers, and without each other aiming to beat the other, I think it would have taken many more decades before the first transplant was done. It is alarming, nearly, to hear that, because I guess now that we see it in the world and have an experienced organ donation firsthand, you realize that at the heart, at the center, uh, excuse the pun of the <laughs> of the entire matter is there's a goodness, there's a morality, there's a pursuit of extended life uh, in the name of what is right. Yeah. Whereas what you are saying is that quite a lot of the first man to do this was motivated by ego. Definitely. He was an ambitious man. And I think, he, you know, he was an Afrikaner in South Africa. I think he felt the world looked down on, on him. And he wanted to show the world that actually he had a huge talent um, and a huge motivation. Um, but yes, he was willing to move quicker than anyone else. But where it becomes complicated is that all these four surgeons were within days of being the first. Mm. Barnard was the first. And if we look at the first, perhaps 25, 30 transplants were done. These four doctors did the bulk of them. But guess whose patients lasted the longest? Chris Barnard, the guy who'd done the least work in the labs. Wow. His patients actually lasted longer. 
And this was something, even though he, he was a charlatan in, in many ways and an egotist and a narcissist, he was actually intuitively um, a gifted medical man. And when his patients had the transplant, he could sometimes see after a few days that perhaps just by looking into the patient's eyes, he could glean intuitively that maybe something was amiss in the kidney or the lung or another part of the body, and he needed to see if he could tweak the medication. He just did this by gut feel. So people who just dismiss him as a total um, narcissist are making a big mistake because he actually was a gifted medical man. Which leaves the whole thing quite an ambivalence, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess it's pretty reflective of life in general that there's rarely a Darth Vader or a black, <laughs> a black and white idea of who people are. There was good and bad in Barnard. I mean, the ambition in, in some ways and the ego is what has brought us to this place. The day you know, the important thing, I think, if I could just chip in there, is that although Barnard um, won the battle to be the first, the two men who won the war in heart transplantation and made it just a fairly normal procedure is Shumway and Lauer, the two guys who started back in the 1950s, because certainly the first years of heart transplantation were a disaster. So many patients did die quickly. And this is because if you put in someone else's organ into your own body, your body's immune system immediately starts attacking this mm -hmm. organ. And they did not understand the whole immunological consequences of transplantation to the depths that doctors do today. And it was only because Shumway and Lau, although they were mortified that Barnard had beaten them to be the first, they were scientists. They thought, we get, we're going to make this successful. And they worked in isolation for many, many more years. While no one else was doing transplantation, people just gave up on heart transplantation. It was actually banned in a lot of countries like the USA for a while. But Shanwen Lauer persisted, and eventually they worked out how to get the sort of medication that would allow a human body to accept a donor organ, a donor heart, and, and not kill it off. So they ultimately are the two people we've got to admire the most because they, they salvaged heart transplantation, even though they weren't the first to do the, the uh, actual transplants. And that uh, medicine, that immunosuppressant medicine, is yes. now you know the, the central column of why uh, we believe and we trust in uh, the processes of uh, organ donation. It's obviously a double-edged sword in that uh, it is the shutting down of the immune system. So uh, any recipient becomes prone to infection of any sort of from yeah. the, wor the world around them. I guess when we speak of Barnard and when people talk about the first heart transplant, I think that there is a view in the world that and, and, and then transplants <laughs> existed and they continued to happen. But as you say, it was banned for a period. Such was the level of failure involved. Sure. But that all being said, on that day when this first heart is transplanted, you in your book incredibly evocatively describe how it is brought to life and what that moment must have looked like. Would you mind reading that extract for the listeners just to take us to that place and that medical milestone and historical milestone in the history of the world? Okay, I will, yes. Um, 
Just to give some context, this is in the early hours of a Sunday morning in December in Cape Town in 1967. And in the surgical theater, Chris Barnard is about to step in and make into medical immortality. And this is what he says. Go ahead, Barnard said quietly. Shock it. Zinsky sent a 20-joule charge into the heart. For a moment, Barnard said later, the heart lay inert without any sign of life. We waited, it seemed like hours, until it slowly began to relax. Then it came like a bolt of light. There was a sudden twitching of the atria followed quickly by the ventricles. Little by little, it began to move with the lovely pulse of life. But as soon as they switched off the machine, the transplanted heart failed. The blood pressure mark dipped to 70. Barnard ordered them to go back to the pump. They waited for five nervous minutes before they attempted to start again. The same pattern occurred. Barnard shuddered bleakly. He knew how many dogs he had lost when he could not wean them off the machine. At 6.13 a.m., they made another anxious attempt. Cut the pump, Barnard said. There was another hesitation in the heart, as if it was deciding whether or not to live in its huge new body. And then it began to beat more steadily. The pressure soared back up to 90. Jesus, did gaan werk, Barnard said in Afrikaans. In English, this meant, Jesus, it's going to work. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> oh... Um, I check your pulse there if uh, that hasn't moved you. <laughs> Woof. Uh, Donald McRae, just one of the true gents of this world and one of the great, great writers that we've had on the show. His book, Every Second Counts, The Race to Transplant, The First Human Heart, is of course still available everywhere. I would recommend going to your local independent bookstore and requesting it. It is a book that everyone needs to... I would actually love to hear Donald read it because, holy moly, that was powerful. And I've listened back to him say those words so many times and each and every time I get a punch in the throat from it. It's unbelievably powerful. Entire book is just an amazing read. And like I say, Donald, that's his connection to this. Our next contributor, Darren Cawley, comes from an entirely different perspective in that he's a man who knows about the suffering that I mentioned at the top of the show. He knows all about what it's like for people suffering with kidney disease, awaiting kidney donations, people who have received donations and then have had them not work out. He's seen every side of that coin and the power of positive thinking to get him through that period. This was a fella, Darren Cawley, who was living a normal life, fielding highballs for his local GA club one minute, and then 10 days later is on dialysis for the foreseeable future, who lived in denial for quite some time. I'll let him tell his story, and then you'll understand why he makes the living he does today and from where he makes it. Darren Cawley, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me on our very special annual 
kidney donation episode of the show. We've been putting these episodes together for a while and James Nolan has actually appeared on nearly every single one and he recommended you as somebody to talk to as someone who has lived through kidney disease and actually uh, made it your business to help other people live through it too. I feel like this is a kind of a reality that people forget and that sometimes if we could articulate a little bit better how tough it is for people with kidney disease that we might see more donors. Yeah, I think that's a, a good reality. And I, I am an example of that for many reasons, because I had a transplant and I lost it many, many years ago. And then I spent nine years on dialysis. So I was going into hospital every two days for nine years. So if you talk about the pain points of living with kidney disease, I've I've ticked a lot of them boxes. Yeah, I mean, tell me about losing it. Like you say, lost it. What happened, first of all, I know that in 1998 you had all sorts of plans to move into physical education or coaching and then within 10 days all of that disappeared. Yeah, I was a sports and fitness study student, so I had kind of titles in boxing and handball, so I was a very healthy, outgoing kind of guy. And in my second year of college, I started to get headaches and this kind of blurred vision, these black dots in my eyes and... Being a typical West of Ireland guy, the last thing I was going to do was going to see a doctor over in England where I was in college. But eventually we were playing, we had set up a Gaelic team. I went to catch the ball one night and it smacked me in the head. And out of sheer embarrassment, hmm. I went to the college doctor who totally ignored me and told me to see an optician because she thought <laughs> I was trying to get out of my exams, which of course I was. So I uh, went to see an optician. Optician sent me to the hospital and they, after... You know, they did a few tests. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. A few test results came back and they said, we're very sorry. You've chronic end stage renal failure, which I didn't un- I didn't understand any of them words. But then they said, your kidneys have failed. And at that stage, my mother had flown over from Ireland and she was bawling her eyes out. And I asked a simple question, am I going to die? Because that's that's where mm-hmm. I was. I didn't understand any of this stuff and said, no, no, no. You'll probably end up on this thing called dialysis. So. Within the week, I was on dialysis, and that was it. In the space of 10 days, really, a healthy sports and fitness study student to living with kidney failure. Wow. I mean, from what I hear and what we've talked about in previous years on this, the life of a dialysis patient is, uh, it's hard to describe it as, as life. Yeah, it becomes ordinary in my case because I was so long on it. But uh, and then the transplant then is kind of this extraordinary place you want to get to. But it is it is tough. You're taking plenty of drugs. Your blood pressure is all over the place. You have to go into a hospital. For in my dialysis, I was doing hemodialysis mm. and get these big fat needles thrown into your overinflated vein in your arm. So so much of it is just unnatural, you know. And you're lying there in a bed, surrounded by people. Generally, in my case, who are in their sixties, seventies, and eighties. And of course, what happens at 10 o'clock in the morning in Mayo, but the, the death notices come on. And that's, it's hilarious. You're being kept alive by a machine and there's people asking to turn up the death notices there, you know. So it was, a, it was surreal sometimes to be thinking I'm in this situation. Yeah. But they were the, they're the dark, difficult times, obviously. And I had to get through them. But again, the, the, to get to that place, as you say, of getting a, a donation, what went wrong and what took place that this first one didn't work out? Yeah, I got the first transplant after a year on dialysis here in Ireland. And 
it was going brilliant. You know, I, I kind of thought to myself, whatever happened the past two years with kidney failure, dialysis, I can put all that behind me. And I did. But in the second year, I started to get bad results from Beaumont, from the hospital. You know, the, the results were getting mm. worse and worse. And they did a biopsy and they said, we're very sorry. You've got this thing called a, a BK virus, a polyomer virus. And it's uh, destroying the kidney and we're going to have to remove it. So I, I had to go into hospital. That was the reason this thing called a PK virus. And I don't know much about it, but it was horrible in the fact that like you wake up the day after the operation and you're wheeled into the, the dialysis unit again. And you're kind of told you won't be getting a transplant again for quite a while due to certain things that have to be sorted out first. Mm. So that was the really low moment. Getting kidney failure wasn't the low moment. That was just I was in shock. Yeah. But it was, you know, going back into that that room again with all the blood pressure noises and the machines beeping and groans and moans of people who aren't doing too well. It was just not a nice thing. So that was that was definitely the worst time of, of having kidney failure is and going who, back who into had donated you? Yeah. Who had donated the kidney on this occasion? We, we don't know. Someone that passed away. OK. It was a deceased donor. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you were thinking at that point, like so many that, you know, you got dealt this ace card and you must have there must have been a certain amount of self-blame going on. There was a little bit because I was maybe 22 years old and I was going out now and again socializing and I thought maybe I was going out too much and it wasn't that they told me that maybe I wasn't taking my tablets right. I was finding excuses and reasons to to put blame on on myself because it's a it was a horrible horrible feeling to lose a kidney mm. and like i talked to you probably chatted to joe brawley on all this but like he was delighted to donate but like it, it is that kind of heartbreaking thing when a transplant doesn't work yeah and more you know more so in his case because it was a living donation but for me you you feel guilty you feel like what did i do wrong is there anything i could have done mm. i received the gift of life and yes i i, I can't enjoy it I, I let someone down yeah, I mean, the reading that I've done in the past year alone opened my mind up to this idea that often the recipients do have a certain amount of self-loathing for the even just the trouble that they've put people to. Yeah. Uh, is that correct? Definitely, definitely. And that went ahead like over them nine years on dialysis, like I was going into schools and companies giving talks. And I was always people coming up afterwards asking, say, look, I, I wouldn't mind getting checked out for you. You know, if you need a kidney, I'll help you out. I had loads of friends saying that. I had relations. I had my own family. My girlfriend, who's now my wife, was I, I think she was so keen to get married. She was willing to give me a, a transplant, you know. So I always said no, because I couldn't. I didn't want to carry that around if anything went wrong. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that is the thing that I'm sure that people listening to this will identify with is that selection of who it's going to be has to be so careful because ultimately you're going to be in that person's debt for the rest of your life your, or for the rest of the days you get. What, what was the steps that led to the second donation? And I mean, like it is fair to say, Darren, you're a different human being to that man that you just described there still going out a bit. What change took place to make you so different and make the second donation so different? I think the nine years on dialysis, in terms of personal development, I started to change my mindset massively on dialysis, if that's what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And that 
I didn't read fiction. You know, there was no internet back then. You know, there was no internet in the hospitals. There was no iPhones. There was no laptops hardly. They were just coming in. So all I had really was daytime TV or reading. And I would be pretty exhausted on dialysis, but I'd always spend the first hour reading something nonfiction. So I read a lot of kind of popular psychology books, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits, or Tony Robbins and different kind of motivating people that started to change my mindset. Hmm. And that when I read a lot of biographies and all biographies to me are similar in that it takes a person who's successful and they go back in time and show how they weren't successful. And they went through all these ups and downs, this roller coasters everyone seems to go through of hard times. And it's through the hard times that our greatest gifts are revealed is kind of the ultimate thing I find. And so I started to get a more positive mindset. I started to become more proactive and outgoing. I started going in doing talks in schools and things like that. So I, I started to feel like I was useful. Mm. That was a big thing about the starting to go into schools, talking about donor awareness, going up with James Nolan, the Punchtown Kidney Research Fund, going up that day. And James had had me going around talking to everybody and explaining what it's like on dialysis and trying to wear, you know, create awareness. And I felt like a useful person again, because when you're sick, when you're you're on dialysis, you feel like a burden. You know, you're you've been kept alive by a machine. You're being supported by other people. So to feel useful, I think, was the greatest gift that I got from from kind of doing these talks and motivational speaking. So that really helped change my mindset so that when I got the next kidney, I was in a very, very good place mentally. Mm. And if the kidney works or doesn't work, I know now I can overcome massive adversity and still still regain who I am and who I want to be. Darren, like when you describe it again, there'll be people listening who aren't even waiting on kidneys who will know what it feels like to be unwell and to feel like a lesser human being for for that. And, you know, that that mindset that you had gotten to of no, 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 I'm in fact more valuable because of what I've lived through and how that can inspire other people is like a, a great place to get to, especially with the journey that lies ahead. Because Mm -hmm. maybe you can explain to people that, you know, it's not, you know, a bed of roses once you get the kidney the second time. There's still there's still an awful lot involved. Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge operation. You're left with, you know, 25 staples in your stomach. And that's not easy either. (laughs) The the physical aspects are hard. For me, one of the biggest emotional difficulties was I was going into hospital every two days. I had massive relationships with the healthcare team, the nurses in the dialysis unit, Casabar. Mm. We were friends, you know, I was inviting them all to my wedding. You know, we became very close. And suddenly, oh, we don't need to see you now for a month. And I'm going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What if something happens to me? What if something goes wrong? I don't have this safety net. I was out there all on my own. So, like, it was mentally challenging to, to get the transplant. And you're expected to be suddenly the happiest and healthiest person imaginable. Mm. We're certainly grateful for getting the transplant, but there's still a lot of life challenges that had to be overcome then upon getting a transplant. Yeah. And And on top of all that, like someone in my case, again, someone passed away. So there's that gratitude and that sort of debt. And it's a debt you can't pay back only in living forward as positively as you possibly can. Yeah. I mean, I can't um, I can't imagine like from my my own perspective, obviously, as a donor myself, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can't put myself in my brother's 
shoes. And I think sometimes when I mention that self-loathing thing, that that's obviously part of part of that is that sense that I can't figure out how to make up for this or to to pay this forward. Did you wrestle with those thoughts for long or was it the transplant games that uh, turned the dial a little further towards? No, I, I have a focus now. Well, the transplant games were certainly for me an enormous catalyst for kind of changing my life to becoming like the person I feel I am today. And the reason for that was the role models I met. I met all these other people who had transplants and like they were living their life full out. Like for all them years on dialysis, I guess I felt. Oh, I don't know how I felt. It was it was I felt like I was a sick person. Mm. And until you go to the transplant games, like I remember meeting James, like and now he's he runs a huge business, he's married, he's kids, he has all the things that I thought weren't possible. Mm. You thought all that stuff was off limits for you. I thought it was, yeah. I remember after I got married and a few years later we we were expecting our first child, my mother broke down crying and we were kind of what's what's wrong? Like why are you so upset? And she assumed because I had kidney trouble, it was all connected and I'd never have kids. So like it was, it was, it was a real amazing to, to kind of, to, to quench that bit of yeah. ignorance in her in that, oh yeah, there's nothing you can't do when you have a transplant. And instead of feeling sorry for myself, instead of feeling not worthy, you know, I think the best gift you can get to your, to the, the family who donated uh, the kidney in my case is to, to live outwardly, to, to become a role model, to become more outgoing, to be happy and healthy in life. And it certainly shapes my perspective every day in that every time I go to the toilet, I actually think of the, the donor because I went nine years not going to the toilet. Yeah. Like it's hard to believe one of my greatest pleasures in life is just drinking water, putting yeah. a few liters of water to the top of my head and gulping it down. You know, I dreamed about just doing that for years and it took so long. It's only after the transplant you kind of, ah, oh, you can relax and drink whatever you want. The little things mean so much. You know, Darren, it's not hard to see why you've made your uh, career in motivational speaking. Tell us a little bit about what you say when you go places. Like, what is the what is the center of your presentation and how much of it do you think is about getting people to get donor cards and presenting to them the reality of what what they can do if they sign up for one? Yeah, I to be honest, I feel like I don't need to talk a great deal about donor cards because when I go through all the pain points I went through, I show people this massive fistula on my arm. I show them the scar. They kind of, I think they get it inherently that, wow, you went through some serious ups and downs. And I do it a bit of like self-deprecating humor. Mm. I kind of laugh at myself a lot on the different aspects of the talk. And people kind of understand what it means to get a transplant. And it's not so much like I go into a lot of schools also and I, I never give out donor cards. I tell them free text this if you want more information, free text donor to 50050 because I'd hate kids going home to their parents and said, oh, this guy came into school today and he was looking for kidneys. He was looking for <laughs> transplants, you know, yeah. misinterpretations can happen like yeah. that. So I just give a small bit of advice. But I think through the story, people realize that you know, being a donor, having the little card in your back pocket, it's no burden. It's nothing difficult. It's nothing hard to do. But 
the biggest part of my story is that it's, it's for other people and that we all encounter adversity in life. And it's only by overcoming adversity that we become this stronger version of ourselves. I think you, were, uh, you mentioned that in some of your podcasts that the person you are today, since the person you are before you had the transplant, you know, you've developed and grown strengths and skills and tips and tactics that you wouldn't have had prior to the transplant donation. Mm. Yeah, no, 100%. It is about self-actualization and, um, you know, ambition and to be more like we do think of things as, as you say, off limits. And there's something about donation that people don't automatically put it in the category of possibilities for themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think some of what I've been doing this week, and I really try and devote the full week of the anniversary of my kidney donation is just answering every single question. Anybody who messaged me on Instagram got a voice note back from me because so many people just need to hear a voice. They need to be able to put a person to the thing. Otherwise, it's off somewhere else. And what I think you do, like in in an unbelievable way, Darren, is you really do explain to people, like you say, the adversity, the that that dark side to this, the dialysis period, those those years are so, so tough within that. And nobody wants anybody to be in that. Nobody wants to see anyone suffer. That's a human instinct that if you're lacking, you need to get that looked into. But you must have had times during that nine years where you wondered, can I go on? Well, thankfully, it never got that like I I wouldn't have classed myself as being depressed, maybe at the beginning. You know, I remember in college studying sports and I've I've kidney failure now. I you know, you walk out of the hospital and you have a treatment protocol. You know, you're going to be on dialysis. You're going to take these drugs. And I walked out of the hospital thinking. That's great. I have a treatment. I'm going to stay alive. But my whole life is now gone. You know, I broke up with my girlfriend. I didn't want to go back to doing a degree in sports because I couldn't play sports, which was my lifeblood at the time. It was all I wanted to do. Hmm. And so it just your life. That was a diff. I remember sitting on a toilet crying, you know, and just kind of what happened. And thankfully, I think at that time I shook it off and I just said, right, I'm not going to be like this again. And that could, again, could be the West of Ireland hide it and throw it all under the carpet and ignore it. I don't know. Mm. But, I think uh, that's all of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, all of Ireland. Yeah, well, it certainly it got me through that that thick attitude of not allowing myself to go low. I had a lot of friends. I was very lucky. We had a, there was loads of Irish people over in Luton is where I went to college, Bedfordshire. Yeah. And because we'd set up a Gaelic team, it was a great tight knit group of us. And I was really well looked after by everybody. So that stopped me going into the real dark places. Now, I'm sure if you talk to my mother, I used to go off walking a lot myself, just myself, just go for walks. And I think she used to worry about me. But I, I wasn't in a bad place. It was just I enjoyed getting away from people and just being in nature seemed to be a great help for me, a kind of form of active mindfulness, I think they'd call it now. But at the time, that really helped me. Mm. Darren, it's so good to talk to you. I hope that uh, in years to come, you'll come back on the show to talk more about it. We're going to make this episode a kind of a breeze through all of the voices and stories that we've heard from uh, the past episodes of Irishman Abroad, uh, where we've got both sides of the coin 
if there's one thing, though, you'd want to leave us with on this subject, what would it be? I think it would be certainly think about carrying a donor card. There's no downside to it. You're three or four times more likely to need a transplant than you ever will be to, to, to actually donate or to give a transplant. So I think that's important. But I think on a larger scale, it's more important to understand that in your life, you're going to go through adversity. Bad things are definitely going to happen. And I really feel people should not worry too much about that because that's where you learn about yourself and that's where you, you grow that's where you really, really grow as a person. So it took me a long time to kind of accept my condition, accept who I was as a person with kidney failure, and then kind of develop my attitude to become a stronger person. And I think that's the important thing is to know that, especially for, say, children, younger people, is that you're going to go through crap. Keep going, because once you go through it, you come out the other side a better, stronger person. So carry a donor card and have a positive attitude to life, because it is worth living. Darren Coley, absolute pleasure to have you on the show and hopefully we'll chat in person soon. Look forward to it, Jared. Darren Coley there speaking to me this week, actually. DarrenColey.ie is the place to go if you'd like him to come to speak to your business, sports club or organisation. He is, of course, an award-winning motivational speaker, highly in demand, and you can see why just away with words and an incredible story to tell. I wish we had more time with him. Huge thanks to Darren for contributing, but it does bring home exactly why you carrying a donor card isn't just about you and the legacy and, you know, it making sense. There's actually an empathy within this, that this suffering is continuing needlessly. If more people were carrying the cards, there'd be less people on dialysis for nine years like Darren was. Well, he mentioned James Nolan there, good friend of the show, has appeared on a lot of our kidney donation episodes. And James received a kidney from his sister, having endured years of childhood illness. Today, he and his wife, another friend of the show, Emma, uh, own and run the award-winning Nolan's Butchers in Kilcullen. And he continues to carry the flag and raise millions for kidney research and support uh, across the country for donation, donor cards. And he gave me the short but powerful version of his story uh, a while back, and I wanted to play it for you today. It's very simply, I was born in 1967, which ironically was the same year of the first heart transplant, successful heart transplant. And from a very early age, I was sick. I spent most of my early years in and out of hospital. I was very, very lucky that my mother, Anne, was a nurse. And the doctors kept telling her that I had some mild form of meningitis because of the fits I was having. But she didn't feel it tallied up because of her nursing background. And she persisted. And I ended up being diagnosed with reflux at a very, very early age. So one and a half, I had a pretty big operation again at seven years of age, I spent six months in hospital with a pretty major surgery that was certainly touch and go. And that was followed up again when I was 13 years of age. So really my early childhood, most was spent in and out of hospitals, visiting doctors, going to clinics, having tests done. And after the operation at the age of 13, myself and my parents were told, look, inevitably it's going to lead to end stage renal failure and you will end up going on to dialysis. When exactly that was going to happen, they couldn't tell me. 
So in 1986, I ended up on dialysis in the old Meath Hospital. And um, it, was a, it was a tough journey because I'd been getting sicker and sicker, but didn't want to admit it to myself and to my family. So it was really struggling on. It was like carrying an extra handicap around with you all the time because you had no energy, you couldn't eat. And when you did eat, you were just vomiting up. So inevitably, I ended up getting very, very sick. Went on to dialysis in 1986. Started with the hemodialysis. That's the hospital-based dialysis. Switched to CAPD then in early 1987. But I had problems with the CAPD. And um, May, got very, very bad pertinitis, May 1987. And my family then were approached to see would one of them consider going forward for donating a kidney. Well, let me now, stop you in- there really quick, James. Let me just jump in because, you know, you've obviously described a mouthful there that I'd imagine that the strain that this is on you and your family at that point is indescribable. They're all so worried for you because they're really looking down the barrel here. They really are thinking we may not have James for that long. This this may, this may not have a happy ending. Yeah, I, I think for me, Charlotte, I was born with it. So it was a lot easier for me because it's something I grew up with. But certainly for my parents and my family looking in from the outside as such, it must have been desperately difficult, especially for my parents. And then when the Dr. Joe approached the family and asked, would we consider a living organ donation? Obviously, at that stage, things were getting pretty critical. So my family were tested and my sister, Catherine, who was the eldest in the family, she made the greatest decision that any human being can make to give the gift of life to me. And Charlotte, you've done it for your brother, Adrian. And I'm saying this hand on heart. To me, it is the greatest act of humanity a human being can do for another human being. And in a time where we live, where everything is all doom and gloom, there isn't enough done to highlight these wonderful acts of humanity that you, Charlotte Regan, done for Adrian, your brother, and my sister Catherine did for me. Because at the end of the day, she gave me life. You gave Adrian life. It's as simple as that. And for that, I'll always be eternally grateful. Well, I'll never tire of hearing it. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I do, I do love hearing it. And I think it's important for people to hear it because it, like, it does make your heart swell. And I'm sure it, it makes Catherine's heart swell to hear those words. Because for, for as described in Vivian's conversation, it feels like a no brainer when you're that person and it just feels right. And you're just like, well, I'll do it. Like, no question. You don't do it with a big hero complex going on in your mind. But what's interesting about Catherine is you're one of the first people to receive the live kidney donation in Ireland. Is that correct? So th- th- there's an added jeopardy there. Yeah, we were the first living transplant done in the Blackrock Clinic in uh, the 25th of July, 1987. So it was a huge thing. And for Catherine, it must have been a massive decision at a very early stage in her life. You know, she was only uh, 22 at that stage. She had a modelling career with the Geraldine Brand Agency. You know, it was a huge decision for her. But ultimately, she made the greatest decision that any human being 
can make, she decided to give me the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. But Charlotte, in a previous show, you interviewed a man called Donald McRae, who wrote an extraordinary book called Every Second Counts. And for me, I've always been fascinated about the whole story of transplantation. I often think of the doctors in the 40s and the 50s, and they're deciding that they're going to take one kidney out of one person and put it into another. And, and I think of the religious, the moral, the social, the economic obstructions that they must have faced. And yes, they persisted. And it's thanks to that I am alive and here today. But if you take Donald McRae in that book, chapter 10, it is the most heartbreaking story, the way he describes what Edward Darvel went through when his wife, Myrtle, and his daughter, Denise, were in a tragic accident and how the doctors, Bossman and Ventner, had the conversation with him at the most tragic, tragic time to see would he consider donating organs. And Edward Darvel's reply was, if you can't save my daughter, you must try and save another life. I mean, at the hardest point in his life, this man made the greatest decision to help others. And what he did reflects what all the families that face these tragic decisions, sorry, tragic accidents in their lives and have to make these really tough decisions. They're absolute heroes in my eyes. Uh, no different to my sister, Catherine. No different to you, Jarlath Regan, for donating a kidney to your brother. It is the greatest gift of humanity. I'll just say one last thing. Yeah. The flip side of that, if you listen to one of your previous episodes where Donald McRae read an excerpt, I think it was your second kidney program hmm. that you did. And when the transplant is connected, he starts describing it as working to the lovely rhythm of life. Now, they are powerful words. Starts working with the lovely rhythm of life. I think that's... Uh, oh, to hear it from the author's lips as well was was doubly like sometimes with this show, James, I'm, I feel so lucky just to be able to be in the conversation, you, you know, on the other side of it, one to one. And I know that the listeners enjoy it, but to be there listening to it face to face is something else. Some of the stuff that you're saying there uh, about just about life and the, you know, the the value that we place on it in so many ways, the period that we find ourselves in has all this death in it, all this misery, so much loss. In so many ways, it's placed a massive strain on these services and these operations that couldn't take place, the cocooning of people that previously had no need to cocoon. It is nearly, would you agree, the perfect moment to talk about this, because if ever there was a time when people are feeling like life is precious, it's now. Yesterday, Jarlath, I spoke to Dilly Little in Beaumont Hospital, our National Transplant Centre, and I was absolutely staggered to hear that during the pandemic in the last 12 months, the team in Beaumont Hospital have managed to do 123 kidney transplants. Wow. I thought that was absolutely 
amazing considering the challenges that, that they have, must have faced with COVID-19. And that goes from the transplant surgeons, the nurses, the ward sisters, the ladies serving the food, the, the cleaners, the porters, that whole team in the transplant unit in that hospital must have gone beyond the call of duty to ensure that we could continue transplants. And I I was staggered to hear that. It must have been very hard for all the patients going on to dialysis because they're a highly vulnerable group. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they've got to leave their homes three times a week to go for their dialysis. Right into the belly of the beast, into the most dangerous place possible. Yeah, exactly. But the bottom line is they have no choice but to do it. And I'd say huge credit to those frontline workers that are looking after those dialysis units. I spoke to Geraldine Slowey in, dia- in dialysis unit down in Sligo yesterday, and she was just explaining the difficulties, but they've done it. And the patients have looked after themselves. And that's why we're slowly, slowly, hopefully coming out of all of this. But you're, you're right. March 27th, April the 3rd is Organ Donor Awareness Week in Ireland. And Normally, it would coincide with the Punchtown National Hunt Festival, where we would have our annual charge race. We obviously didn't have it in 2020. We obviously don't have it in 2021. But it's a fantastic event to be able to promote organ donor awareness. We don't have it this year. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it this morning. And at the end of the day, all we're doing is asking people to have the conversation. Have the conversation say yes to organ donation. Because if you have that conversation at home, if, God forbid, there is an accident, it is an awful lot easier for your family to make a decision knowing your wishes. Well, you've you've also skimmed over something extraordinary if we're to turn it around to you, James. And the money that that race that you mentioned has raised is truly phenomenal. Is the figure close to 1.5 or 2 million at at this point? We're just over 1.6 million, Jonathan. There's two things that the charity does. It's called the Punchtown Kidney Research Fund. We run a horse race at the National Hunt Festival at Punchtown in Ireland. It's the equivalent to Cheltenham in the UK. And the the race has raised a huge amount of money. So the last time I was chatting to you, we just opened a brand new children's renal ward, kidney ward in Temple Street Children's Hospital. And that was a landmark project for us to be involved in. We then had moved on to, we were involved in a self-care hemodialysis unit in Talla Hospital. Now, that was meant to open last October, but the HSE stepped in because of the COVID crisis to basically pay for everything. So it, it we weren't involved in it, but there's hopefully another option coming up where a satellite unit for dialysis will hopefully be somewhere in Kildare. That's on the cards at the moment. So we'd love to be involved with that. We also refurbished Sligo dialysis unit with beds, dialysis chairs, beds, mattresses and a few other things. We've kept our art therapy going in Tala and Waterford. And in tandem with all that, I mentioned earlier on how interested I was in research and thanks to research, persistent research has perfected transplantation. That's why I'm here today. So we've just finished a three-year project with Katie Benson in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland in tandem with the Irish Research Council, mapping 
polycystic kidney disease in Ireland. We, Katie had a paper published on it, which was fantastic. And the whole idea is to try and come up with preventative treatments to slow down or avoid leading to kidney failure with PKD. So we've had a lot going on. That's the project side. The other side, as I said to you, is the awareness. And that's what we're here chatting about this morning. You know, magical things can happen if people have the conversation. Say yes to organ donation. It's that simple, really, isn't it? Uh, Have the conversation. (laughs) What harm can be done there? As I say, this show is built on that very idea. Should we have the chat? and see what comes out. Having a conversation with your family isn't going to offend anybody or do any harm. It'll probably give you the opportunity to express some of what you're hearing here if there is any pushback on what you'd like to do or what your wishes are. But making your wishes known is the key. If they don't know and they're presented with this decision that you had made on your donor card, Uh, Should you die in such a way that you can donate, there's a chance that they can say no. So you want to avoid that as as much as possible, because, as I say, now that the dust has settled on my own experience of this and the five years has passed, I get to see, unlike deceased donors, what it does, what the impact is, how it changes the life of the person who receives the kidney and the joy and the satisfaction that it gives just grows it doesn't diminish it doesn't flatline out that asher yeah it was a big high at the time no it just grows as you see the person do more be more realize more happiness and you see yourself like my own story here irishman running abroad irishman abroad uh, stand-up comedy and everything that I've gone on to do afterwards with a renewed kind of vigour, simply because, just like my brother, I embraced a new appetite for life, having uh, given away what, admittedly, you'd have to say, is a kidney that must have been holding me back to a degree. Like, what was I doing before this? Directly after I donated, I turned on the recorder. And this is a... really important piece of audio for me personally because it was the beginning like it felt like the start of it just felt like everything was just going to feel more now and uh, it still does it still does and every time I listen back to this it fucking kills me and uh, it's going to be followed by a conversation I had with my brother over the phone a couple of years ago, just to check in how he was doing now. And after that, you'll hear a few more contributors from our kidney episodes over the years. Sarah Griffin, Dr. John Ryan, Dr. Joshua Meserich, who wrote an amazing book about it. Vivian Trainer, of course, from RTE. A few more thrown in there at the end. Brian Connolly produced this episode. Tina and Mikey make it all possible every single week. But they also made the the donation possible. The people around you lift you up through this. They need to be on board with you the way Tina and Mikey were with me. If you're going to go for a live donation, they need to come with you with that level of support. I want to say thanks again to Tina and Mikey and urge you to listen to the next 
few minutes of this podcast and get yourself a donor card and contact me if you have any questions about live donation. My email address is always available. My WhatsApp is even available on Instagram. I have a business WhatsApp account there that you can text message the Irish member at Liveline. Uh, you can support our show on patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad and get access to everything we've done, including the previous kidney episodes, the stand-up show, Organ Freeman, and lots, lots more. But uh, please listen to the last part of this epic episode and um, consider getting a donor card today. Hello there. I am speaking to you from the other side of this experience and you know I can't breathe too deeply at the moment because there's a certain amount of pain but I'll tell you this the transplant uh, took place successfully yesterday February 2nd 2017 we were both prepped me and my brother side by side and we bumped knuckles and it happened thanks to the wonders of anesthesia it felt like it was over in a split second Dr. George Chow removed my kidney it was rinsed and it was placed in a preserving fluid and then quickly transplanted by another surgeon in the theatre next door into my brother Adrian Uh, I'm told that once it was attached it immediately oxygenated and started working there and then in the theatre which just blows my mind right now even to say it but once I woke up fully I was informed that he had passed urine and I'll tell you that relief is immense Five hours later, (laughs) five hours, five hours later, I was walking around unsupported in a bit of pain, but honestly, just floating. Yesterday, my brother's creatinine and calcium levels were through the roof. That's very bad. And today... (laughs) After a night's rest, thanks to those surgeons, and let's face it, thanks to my incredible kidney, those levels are normal. In fact, his levels are actually better than mine right now, but I'm told that that will all balance out. <sighs> like, like, this is not the story. Like, for him, this is the end of a 10-year journey. For him and his wife, who refused to accept the first opinion a doctor gave them about what was wrong with him. She refused to accept that and went on a mission to solve his hyperparathyroid issue. And that journey began 10 years ago. And this is the end of that journey in the beginning of a new life where they will first try to ensure that the organ is accepted fully by his body and an adjustment to see what life is like now with the fully functioning kidney where he can eat whatever the fuck he likes and, uh, you know, be confident that he's got a long life ahead of him. Your messages 
and support uh, from guests and listeners alike have meant a huge amount. I'm not going to lie to you. Really touching uh, the way you, you reached out in your numbers and the things you said. And we rode that wave. We rode that wave of positivity to where we are now. And to me, it still seems really simple. Yesterday, I had two perfectly good functioning kidneys. My brother had none. Today, we each have one. And are ready to face the rest of our lives, confident in that knowledge. If that makes sense to you, that little equation there, had two healthy ones he has none today one each if that makes sense to you then you should be carrying a donor card at the very least you should have the conversation with your family about what should happen in the event of one of you needing an organ because yeah my brother's case is very 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 specific but there's so many other cases there's so it's not just kidney disease there's Anything could happen. But it is literally a case of life and death. It's obviously a life changer for my brother. From my perspective, I guess. For all the jokes about I won't have to buy him a Christmas present again. For all of that nonsense, it's woken me up to this issue. And hopefully, through listening to this, passing it on to your friends, it'll wake some other people up. Please, please educate yourselves on organ donation. Go out and get a card. Have a chat. This has been special. And I'm now going to roll over (laughs) in my hospital bed and uh, sleep a pretty, uh, pretty... uh, I'm going to sleep the sleep of a fulfilled man. Hey, bro. How are you doing? Good, Jared. Good. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad. Where are you right now? We're just at the February sale at Saint Tipton. Um, how are you? How are you doing? You know that I'm I'm ringing you for the show, and I know it's a bit weird that we're recording this, but uh, I just wanted to ring in and check and see how you were doing. No worries, Jared. No, all is good. All is good. It couldn't be in any better health and um, massive energy and all is good oh, well you know um, when we talk on the phone and you say that and it's uh, it's such an Irish thing to go everything's good but it uh, it means the world to me when I hear that no honestly Charlotte like uh, you know we've been chatting along the whole way along through the whole process but really as uh Week by week, well, nearly you'd have to stretch it out to month by month now. Just you feel better and better. I find the whole thing that I find about it, the extraordinary about it is after a year, I thought it was great, but to be honest, after two years, I feel twice as good as I did last year. Whether 
that's probably a little bit hard for people to believe, but it's a fact. So there's a chance so, that if that rate of improvement continues, that y- you could be superhuman in a few years? I'm thinking that I'll probably <laughs> run the Dublin City Marathon here in, in a couple of years. Yeah, give it two years. <laughs> no, I know. And you know that you know that's not true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, it is um, like I always say to you that it's it's impossible for anybody to understand what we lived through, and I don't know what it's like on your side. All I know is what it's like on mine. And uh, you know, as I say to you, I do it again tomorrow. Well, Jerry, you know how much I appreciate it, and you know it's just unbelievable the appreciation you have afterwards, and. You know, it's a whole new, different life, and you know, it's very hard for people to understand and to appreciate just how much of a change it is, and your whole outlook and everything. It's just, it's unreal, but it really, the, the freshness that it installs in a person and the well-being and the good feeling is, well, of course, I'm speaking on a personal level, but I like a. I, I find it very hard to, at times to get my head around um, how good it feels, especially in my case. I didn't feel as if I was a sick person going into the transplant because uh, thanks to the doctors and nurses and the specialists at the Mayo Clinic, my, my transplant was sort of uh, known for a number of years before I was going to have it, but mm. it was timed when they thought I really needed it. Yeah. Where, where, where I was fortunate uh, to be in that uh, position. You know, other people don't have um, that sort of um, timeline that I had. But, mm. you know, like I said, I didn't feel as if I was, like I had fatigue. I definitely had fatigue. But I, I never would have said to somebody, I'm a sick person going in. But uh, as it turns out afterwards, and the way things are now and the way I feel now with energy to burn yes I was a sick person going in and uh, you only realise exactly afterwards after the transplant and thankfully everything I've had such a clean run afterwards and um, with no hiccups touch wood and um, it, it's just been fantastic and a fantastic change and a total change of uh, perspective on everything you know Um. Well, take care of it, because uh, I draw the line at uh, one. I, I, I will, I will, I re- simply refuse to give you another kidney. That, that's just me. <laughs> All right, that, that that that's fair enough. That's fair enough. But uh, yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's a deal. Okay, I look after this. One. <laughs> okay. Look, good luck with the sale, and uh, I'll, I'll All right. talk to you at the weekend. Yeah, Charlotte, thank you very much for the call. Talk to you. Love you, bro. Bye. Love you too, man. Bye. It is the greatest gift that anyone can give, and that's the gift of life. So, I mean, what it did for me, I suppose the the best thing, it enabled me to go from being very sick, very dependent on hospitals, obviously dependent on dialysis, to stay alive, to being able to for once just be able to live my own life so I mean that and the support of a wonderful family which I have that's the best thing that I've been able to enjoy getting married and having a family
I was donating a kidney, but I got a huge sense of achievement out of that. And I also, and not in a sense that, you know, oh, aren't I great, I did this. It was, I felt it was a real privilege to take part mm-hmm. in that process. I was fascinated by the fact that the doctors could come to me afterwards and say, we, you know, we've transplanted the kidney and it's already working. It began to work while your nephew was still in surgery. Say you wanted to donate a kidney to your brother, but you weren't a matching blood type. We can organize a swap where you would donate to someone else and their donor would donate to your brother. So now, in a way, you've affected two people. But it goes even farther than that. When we have a donor that comes in and just wants to donate to do something you know, great for humanity, mm. we actually can start a chain which will now crisscross the country over a couple of months, possibly leading to 20, 30 transplants. I mean, what is more amazing than that? I, I was at a talk through the National Kidney Registry, which is the organization that kind of runs these chains. And this young woman had donated into a chain and she was up there and said, you know, I donated a kidney and I saved 30 people. What will ever in my life <laughs> equal that? And uh, the confidence with which my mother led us to the hospital was something that blew my mind. Because <laughs> Beaumont is such a war and, you know, it's, yeah. it's just how would anyone... I was, we were all obviously shook to the core by this whole experience and partially walking through it like ghosts. But my mother, like, just, she just knew the place like the bag of her hand, you know, rubbing hand sanitizer on her. She goes, not even blinking, like, she's remarkable. So we went into the wee room that they had him in and he just... He just looked entirely different. Like, tired and bruised and exhausted and having just been through the most the, the most horrendous physical ordeal a person can imagine. But his skin was different. That was the first thing I noticed. If people think about it and if people have the opportunity to do it, people are interested in doing it but I think they're limited because they also don't have a lot of exposure to it as well right they don't know they don't know a lot of people who have donated kidneys